Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 14 through verse 23. Mark's Gospel, 13, beginning in verse 14. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I've told you all things beforehand. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So when it comes to communication, we tend to judge ambiguity as an undesirable. We want clean and clear conversation. But in practice... The opposite is often the case. We rather rather tend to love ambiguity. You went birthday shopping and your son asked you, where have you been? Just out and about. What are you thinking? Ah, nothing. Indeed, ambiguity and irony are one of the main building blocks of jokes and humor. We also use ambiguity to test or challenge people. You tell your kid to clean up to see if they will be thoughtful enough to pick up both the living room and the kitchen. Wives tell their husbands, "Uh, uh, you know what I want, to test if he will get it right. Oh, the uses of ambiguity are endless, which is why this is a favorite practice of our Lord. And our Jesus especially uses it here in this 13th chapter of Mark which even though it stretches our minds, it is good and gracious protection for us unto everlasting life. So this whole speech on the end times here, as you'll remember, was instigated by the disciples' question about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. They asked when it would happen and a sign that it would be near. Though as we pointed out, Jesus is not beholden to their narrow inquiry. He he can answer it or not. So, has he answered them or not so far? Well, up to this point, Jesus has basically reframed their question. He refocused the issue to what they were actually asking about. You see, the disciples requested an answer about temple destruction, and Jesus started talking about the day of the Lord. For whether they realized it or not, temple destruction was an aspect of the Old Testament day of the Lord. To ask about one is to inquire about the other. 
Thus, in order to follow our Lord, it's good for us to have a reminder about the Old Testament Day of the Lord, which Jeremiah called the DL. What, then, is the Day of the Lord? Well, this is somewhat of a complex and mysterious act of God in history. But simply put, the DL is the great and final day of judgment at the end of the world in all its terror and wonder. However, in order to testify to and foreshadow this final day, the Lord gave numerous many DLs in history, which we have a handful, uh, which have a handful of standard parts. First of all, the day of the Lord consists of the Lord's miraculous presence or action. It also includes judgment on God's people, judgment on the nations, and salvation for the saints. And this judgment is severe without mercy. Though the order or sequence of these DL parts isn't always clear or standard in the Old Testament. We have numerous Old Testament examples, though, to clarify for us. First, there was the flood where the wicked world was deluged and remade, and the remnant sailed through those death waters on a holy ark. Second, sulfur rained down on Sodom to swallow all living, while Lot and his two daughters escaped to the mountains. The false church was even turned into salt as Lot's wife looked backwards. Next, the plagues on Egypt were miraculous judgments in history to lay waste to the ungodly and to redeem Israel. And the final main Old Testament example was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Babylon. In fact, the prophets spill more ink on this than anything else. They even corrected a misunderstanding. Back in the Old Testament, the wicked Judeans thought that the DL was pure salvation for them and wrath on the nations. But not so, as they profaned the holy temple with their abominations. Thus the Lord first vented his wrath on them without mercy, and then his fury spilled over to the nations, and through this flood of fire, God preserved a remnant for salvation. Furthermore, the DL on the first Jerusalem became a model for the prophets to forecast the greater things of God to come. By the day of the Lord, the prophets saw with ambiguity both Christ and the final day. Thus, to ask about temple destruction, the disciples are actually curious about the day of the Lord. Yet one of the ambiguities of the prophets as they looked to the future day of the Lord was, did its various features happen at the same time? And what was their order? Which came first, salvation or judgment? Who was judged first, the church or the nations? Did these things happen at the same time, or could they be spread apart? And with this as background, Jesus' answer so far makes better sense. For he brought up features of the Old Testament day of the Lord. Earthquakes, famines, wars, false messiahs. But then he says, these are not the end. In short, Jesus spreads out the events of the day of the Lord apart over larger time spans. The upheavals of the day of the Lord are not the end. 
They're the beginning of the birth pains, but they're not the end. Thus, now our Lord continues by bringing up another Old Testament feature of the DL. He says, when you see, previously he said, when they heard of wars, but now they see. And they will see the abomination of desolations standing where it should not. But what is this? Well, as most of you have heard, this is a simple prediction of the temple destruction in A.D. 70. Though this is such a thin take of this line, it can be misleading. To begin with, the phrase, the abomination of desolation, is taken out of the book of Daniel, where there it is also highly obscure. This is why Jesus tosses in here, let the reader understand. He says, reader, because he's thinking of the Old Testament book of Daniel. And he calls us to understand, because it takes effort. In fact, this phrase makes four appearances in Daniel, and every time the angel tells Daniel to be wise, that it requires serious perception. So what is this abomination of desolation? Well, to begin with, What does it even mean? Well, an abomination is some idolatrous practice. It can refer to an idol, to sacrificial meat, to the idolater, or to just the horrendous wickedness of idolatry. An abomination, though, is also defiling. It profanes holy places and holy people, the saints. It is is defiling idolatry, that grosses God out. Second, desolation here should most likely be rendered as a person, that is, the desolator, one who ruins, who destroys, who makes barren. This is not an object, but is a personal figure, the desolator's abomination. He ruins by his defiling idolatry. This is actually brought out here by Mark as the verb for standing is masculine. But this also becomes clear from Daniel. The desolator phrase first makes its appearance in Daniel 8. There, a little horn, or a king figure, grows up to heaven. He boasts against God, tramples the saints, and due to him, sacrifice stops and the temple is thrown down. Then an angel links together the ending of sacrifice and the trampling of the temple to the transgression of the desolator. The arrogant sin of the desolator connects to the end of the sacrifice and the temple. The details are fuzzy, but they're connected. Next, in Daniel 9, 26 and 27, which we read, we're given three events. First, it says the anointed one is cut off, and he makes a covenant with many, which predicts Christ's death and inauguration of the new covenant. Second, the anointed one destroys the city and sanctuary, and he puts an end to sacrifice. This is the condemnation and close of the theocratic period of Moses that was fulfilled in 70 A.D., Third, it mentions the end with a flood, ruination, 
and the desolator coming on the wings of abomination to have the decreed end poured out upon him. Here, the desolator is mentioned with temple destruction, but he seems to come after it at the end. The next Daniel appearance of the desolator pops up in 1131. Here, force is marched to profane the temple and remove sacrifice. And then after this, the desolator's abomination is set up. Temple ruination and the desolator are connected, but here again possibly separated by time. The final occurrence of the desolator comes in Daniel 12, verse 11, which reads, from the time that sacrifice is removed to the setting up of the desolator, there is a period of 1,290 days. More clearly now, there's a temporal difference between the temple's end and the desolator. And this 1,290 days is Daniel's picture of the church age. It's equivalent to a time, times, and a half a time, or three and a half years. Thus now the church age is wedged between the cutting off of the sacrifice and the coming of the desolator. Now surely this reading of Daniel is involved. Thus Jesus tells the reader to understand. But two points are clarified. One, the desolator is linked to temple destruction. But two, while at the same time being temporally distant from it. And this reading of Daniel enables us to give our Lord what our Lord says here a thicker reading. Namely, is verse 14 exhausted in AD 70? Well, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and Old Testament sacrifice was ended for good, thus fulfilling part of Daniel. And yet the hubris and idolatry of the desolator does not easily fit. In fact, the Roman general Titus, who burned the temple, was not overly religiously motivated, nor did he do any glaring religious acts. In fact, the Jewish zealots, who claimed to be messiahs and held up in the temple for two-plus years, they fit the arrogance and idolatry closer. Yet for the desolator to stand where he ought not refers to a holy place. But the temple had long given up any of its sanctity. In the Gospels, Jesus declared about the temple, your house is forsaken. In his death and resurrection, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the temple was already spiritually defunct and had no sacred value. Thus, you cannot profane something that's already defiled. Christ's resurrected glory made the church holy, not the temple. Therefore, the desolator points more to the Antichrist figure at the end of the age. To see the desolator assumes temple destruction, but it's much more than it. And this same ambiguity applies to the rest of our Lord's warnings here. Thus he says, those in Judea should flee to the mountains. Now, at first glance, this surely seems to refer to AD 70. And in part, it fits. But in many other parts, it does not fit. For one, the two-year-long siege of Rome prevented any movement of peoples 
in and out of Jerusalem. Indeed, the zealots inside the city made sure that no one could leave the city to defect to Rome. Next, there's the urgency. Jesus says, do not even enter the house to grab something, and if you're in the field, don't even grab your coat. So urgent and immediate is the flight, you can't even take a water bottle or jacket. But this doesn't fit a four-year war. Rather, this gravity and haste echoes Lot's flight out of Sodom when fire gushed from heaven in a flash. Something more terrible and swifter is in view here than merely 70 A.D. Hence, Jesus laments for the pregnant ladies and nursing mothers. Now, this is a general cry of sadness for the violence and death of the ruination. That is, being with child, mothers cannot move as fast and can be swept up. More so in the Old Testament, the lament for pregnant mothers was because enemy soldiers would slice open their bellies, killing mother and baby. This is abortion at its most gruesome. Likewise, Jesus tells us to pray that it's not in winter. Snow and frigid winds make the flight twice as much treacherous and deadly. Winter smell, winter spells more suffering and sorrow. Yet these two cries are more general images for the day of the Lord, and they do not apply very well to the Jewish war, which unfolded over four years. Anyone with two cents of smarts could see how it was going to end for the zealot rebels in Jerusalem. Thus the saints, with any understanding, had two years to get out of Judea before the siege even began. And the same goes for the next verse. It says, In those days the tribulation will be worse than anything from the beginning of creation until now and never will be. Now, sure, the terrors of AD 70 were bad, but they were hardly the worst ever. Rather, this line is an Old Testament hyperbolic idiom. You can find the same phrase in Exodus with reference to the plagues, the worst ever. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both employed for the destruction in 586. Thus, this line is not literal, nor should it be read as a provable historical fact. For, if you think about it, how can you even measure such a thing? Rather, this line is one from perspective. That is, from those who endure it, it will feel like the worst ever. Indeed, if you look throughout church history, then whenever she suffers greatly, the saints mourn as if, as if it was never been this bad. Both are in the, in the second and third centuries when the church was suffering, the saints said it. The reformers said this about their day, and some of you have likely said or thought about it today. Some of you have said, surely it's never been as bad as it is today. And yet there's no mathematical way to measure such a thing, but this is how the saints experience it in the moment. Therefore, Jesus states how he will show mercy. He says, if the Lord did not cut these days short, literally all flesh would not be saved. So intense will the tribulation be that no one would be saved. All would fall away. 
Again, this is too universal and too sweeping to apply to 70 A.D. Jerusalem's destruction hardly threatened the salvation of the whole church. Our Lord, again, is pointing us then to the future, to the great day of the Lord. However, these predictions are something you can kind of only know after it has passed. It's only in hindsight, looking back in history, that you can be certain that this is true. In the moment, the tribulation may seem superlative, that no faith will survive. But then the church lives through it and says, and you can say, oh, I guess that wasn't it. Therefore, only in heaven, in the resurrection, will we know the real fulfillment of these two verses. Our Lord, though, tells us more about these days of tribulation. He says, then, if anyone says to you, says to you, look to Christ, do not believe it. Many false Christs and prophets will rise in these days of tribulations. Thus, we should not believe or be deceived by the many false Christs or prophets. Yet Mark provides a link here back to verse 14. He overlaps the many false Christs with the desolator's abomination. Jesus puts in parallel the false Christs with the desolator. The desolator then is the Antichrist. Back in Daniel 8, he did exalt himself over heaven and God. This means in these last days, there's going to be a great deal, many Antichrist. In the moment, many could be the desolator, but you will not know for sure until after the fact. Moreover, the many Antichrist will be good imposters of the Antichrist desolator. For note, he says that they will perform signs and wonders. The many desolators will do miracles. And so winsome will be these miracles that they would lead astray the elect if it was possible. It's not possible, but if it was, it would. And this is an important point for us to register. Too often in the church, signs and wonders have been linked to an authentic ministry. A real minister can whip up wonders and signs. But Christ flips this on on its head. Yes, the apostles did signs and wonders, but after them they stopped. And now those known by miracles are false Christ and prophets. The desolator wheels and deals in miracles. This is a glaring red flag. It should be a clear tool in your wisdom and discernment. If some teacher or preacher is doing miracles, whether real or fake, run the other way. The urgent flight from the desolator, this should be our sprint away from false Christ who work wonders. Such profane idolatries desecrate souls, and lay waste to the holy faith. We should not be deceived by signs and wonders, for they lie in the toolbox of the Antichrist. Indeed, Jesus rounds out this paragraph by reminding us to be on our guard, to be alert and attentive. Discernment is the security system around our faith. 
But what he says next seems like a dad joke. He says, I have told you everything beforehand. What? You mean these dozen verses is Jesus telling us everything? Part of you wants to chuckle and part wants to protest. This murky and complex imagery from Daniel and about the day of the Lord is everything? How can this be? Well, everything doesn't necessarily mean every last detail, but all that you need. Jesus has told you all you need to stay alert and not be led astray. For what has he told us? Jesus made clear that the temple destruction is really about the final day of the Lord. And yet in history, there will be many things that seem like the DL or what's connected to it. Temple destruction, worse than ever tribulation, false Christ, profane miracles, the urgent need to flee spiritual and physical destruction. These all feel like the DL. They could be the DL, but we only know for sure after the fact. Besides, the final day of the Lord will be obvious and unmistakable. And yet it is in this ambiguity that we are always ready for Christ's return, even as his coming may be delayed long. And in this way, Jesus again roots us in his word. For the signs and wonders are contrasted with all that Jesus has told us. Beloved saints, you do not need miracles for your faith, for you have the word of Christ, which is all you need. For the word is better, more stable, and sufficient for your faith and discernment in these last days. Miracles are inferior Reading headlines in the paper are a pathetic substitute. Current events are misleading. But Christ's word is living and powerful. It is nourishing and life-giving. The word imparts to you wisdom, maturity, and courage. The word makes clear what is really important. Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The word focuses us not on the anxiety of tomorrow, but on faith, on love, and on the fruits of the Spirit done today. The word can be studied, memorized, and meditated upon as a constant source of aid and help. And particularly, as Jesus underscores here, the word imparts to you the comforting assurance that the elect are eternally secure. It is not possible for the elect to be deceived. The evil tribulations will be cut short for the sake of the elect. Being in Christ by faith, you are the elect. And the elect is a title that trumpets God's choice and his work for you. The sovereign grace before the foundation of the world chose you in Christ. In love, Jesus died for you while you were yet dead in sin. Before you knew Jesus, he knew and loved you unto death. And having chosen you, God called you, justified you, and he will glorify you. Sure, the tribulation of the last days 
in which we currently live, live may feel like the worst, and it may be or may not be. But either way, Christ holds you in his hand, and nothing can snatch you out. Thus, the ambiguity of the last days is Christ's deliberate grace to make you trust and rely on him and his word all the more, and to make you find comfort in his electing love of you. Jesus does not make clear all the many antichrist or even the final desolator, so that we are always ready for Christ, and yet also not troubled by his delay. Thus Jesus tells you all your faith needs, not everything, but all you need so that you might trust in Christ all the more, so that you might rest in his election of you and not in your own works. And he roots us in his word so that we have a firm foundation by which we can glorify, worship Jesus Christ now and forever and remain faithful to the end. All for his glory and the praise of his mercy. Amen. Let us pray.